invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 as we continue our series. While you're doing that, I just want to give a um, reading to a brother from Covenant College. Andrew is here uh, as a representative of Covenant College and will be here if you'd like to talk to him afterwards. Um, it's just about uh, Covenant. I'm, of course, I'm on the board of Covenant. It's got a place near and dear to my heart. I, um, I love what they're doing. I, uh, Andrew, is it, is it 75, 95% of students who graduate? It's 95. So think of that. 95 of uh, students who graduate from Covenant five years after they've graduated are, part- are, are faithful members in a local church. Um, I think that's an incredible stat. Um, and it just shows that, you know, kind of, and they're not paying me for this, but this is, as a pastor, I tell you, my heart just goes to this, that covenant takes seriously its responsibility to steward a person's soul as well as train their mind. And so just want to encourage you, if you're thinking about a place, uh, Andrew is here and he'd be happy uh, to talk to you, and it's good to, good to have you here with us. We have tonight a magnificent psalm. Um, C.S. Lewis of course, you know who uh, C.S. Lewis is, I think, poet, um, literary genius. Um, has a book entitled Reflections on the Psalms, and, and it said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Uh, that's how highly he thought of Psalm 19. So let's uh, give our attention then to this literary masterpiece as uh, David writes about his God, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, tonight as we come to these words penned by David, inspired by the Spirit of God himself, Father, we pray that you would show us uh, your goodness, your glory, your power, your wisdom, so that we might love you, that we might trust you, that we might gladly, Lord, live our life um, in your likeness, in, in, according to your will, for your glory. Father, so mold us tonight by these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 19 is a poem, uh, a song, 
a poetic response to a man who's been gripped by the reality of God. As you just read Psalm 19, you can't help but get the sense that David is impressed with his God, uh, that David delights in his God, that David thinks about his God. This is the way that someone would write about uh, their special other, their beloved. Uh, David is, is someone who is just um, gripped by the beauty of God, the power of God, the, the rightness of God, the magnificence of God. And, and so as David writes this poem, he's not writing simply as an observer, but as a worshiper. He is delighted by what he sees and what he describes concerning God. And the intent of this psalm, then, is to lead us into that experience. Uh, we could tonight take Psalm 19, and we could just neatly dice it up, exposit line by line, verse by verse, and word by word, and there would be a benefit in that. But I think that by doing that, we might miss the, the impact, the power, uh, and the intent of the psalm. David wants us to experience God. That's what he's after. He wants, he wants you to, to um, just experience the, the um, what do you, when the, the fire hose, that's what I'm thinking, of revelation is flipped wide open as, as the heavens are, are talking to you, shouting to you about the glory of God, and the, and the word of God is speaking to you. You're just being immersed in, day after day, immersed in the revelation of God, the self revelation of a living God who's seeking to communicate with you. And we can just sort of be dull to it, dead to it, blind to it, deaf to it. You see, at very near to the heart of what it means to experience life as a Christian is to experience as you live your life, to experience God in his self-revelation. The acid test, in a sense, of a regenerate heart is someone who has suddenly become aware of God. Truly awake. Not all the way, but, but, but in a new way, aware of the presence of God, the person of God, the truth of God, that God presses down upon him. I often think of David Wells' uh, statement about the a problem with American Christianity. He says the fundamental problem with American Christianity is that God rests lightly upon people. People say that they believe in God, but the, the, the reality of the God that they believe in settles so softly, so gently, so lightly that it doesn't really have an impact. Our problem is, is our, a problem with our experience of God. We're busy with many things and even good things, but we're not busy learning God. And so the, the reality, you see, the weight of his holiness doesn't press down upon people so that they feel constrained to be holy and to live lives of repentance and humility. The weight of his faithfulness doesn't press down upon people so that they live at peace in the promises of God. The weight of God's goodness doesn't settle down upon us with weight so that we live thankful and joyful lives. The weight of his love doesn't settle and press upon us so that we're constrained, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to live all of our life for him. And so people, we, we, we have a tendency to sleepwalk. We have a tendency to, to have uh, all this revelation and yet not, not experience God. 
And the reality of God rests lightly and we're formed by our culture, we're formed by our friends, we're formed by what we see on TV more than we're formed by the reality of God. And Psalm 19 then is written to wake us up. It's written to just open your eyes, to open your ears so that, that, that God, the living God, the God who actually is, is present in your life and is, and is weighty and significant in your life that you find yourself being more and more constrained by who he is and molded according to his likeness. The psalm, of course, breaks uh, naturally into three pieces. The first, David talks about the revelation of God in creation, particularly the heavens, and then the revelation of God in his word, and then David's response to that. And so we'll be taking it in those three parts. In, in verses 1 through 6, David is apparently laying on his back looking up at the night sky. That's um, what it seems to be as, as he just tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can imagine David the shepherd boy, night after night, he'd be out there with the, with the sheep um, and the sky would be ablaze with stars. We don't get that experience uh, today as you would back then or in other parts of the world still today. There's way too much light pollution. There's way too much smog. Uh, you don't see the stars. Not, not the way David did. I hope you, you've had the chance to uh, maybe on vacation uh, get a, a, away from the towns and away from the smog and actually see a night sky and be overwhelmed at how vivid it is, how real it is, how present it is. Because they're talking. That's what David thinks. That's what he senses. The heavens are, the heavens are thundering revelation, proclaiming the glory of God, the weightiness of God. It is a clear revelation. The heavens are not dropping subtle hints but they are, they are proclaiming clearly, loud and clearly, the, the reality of God. In the book uh, Contact, I guess um, it was made into a movie as well, but Carl Sagan um, wrote, wrote the book about this search for intelligent life as they have these vast um, out of listening devices pointed to outer space trying to, trying to hear somebody somewhere out there say something, maybe some clue as to why we're here where we came from, what it's all about. And so they spent billions and billions of dollars on these listening devices waiting to hear, and all they need to do is open their eyes. Creation is thundering a message about the glory of God. And it never stops. It's constant. Day after day, it pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. You don't need to be in the right place at the right time. Like if you're going to see a, a shooting star, all of a sudden, wham, there it is and it's gone. The heavens never let up. They never, they never stop talking. Ever since the beginning, they've been telling the glory of God all day, 24-7. Every night, same thing. They're, the heavens are proclaiming the glory of God. You just have to open your eyes. And, and David marvels in how much communication is taking place even though there are no words. There's no sound. It's silent communication. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Isn't that one of the things that strikes you if you've ever been just laying on your back or out in the, in the country and just looking at the sky? How, how quiet it is? 
all that vastness, all the immensity of space, and it's absolutely quiet. If you see it, the silence is part of it. The silence, I think, it communicates mystery and awe and grandeur. You have a deep sense that you're in the presence of something so much bigger than you. You're just this teeny little speck on a teeny little planet. And where did all these stars come from? How did they get there? Stars are great messengers of realities that are beyond us. We had a, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, of course, a former president, and he enjoyed a um, relationship with a good friend of his, um, a naturalist, a man who's big on nature. And, and, and yeah, the two of them would go out often, uh, and when it was about time to go to bed, and they would, they would uh, look into the night sky and, and find this little glimmer of light near the great square of Pegasus. And then Roosevelt would recite, he would say this, these same words, uh, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own. And then President Roosevelt would grin and say, now I think we're small enough, let's go to bed. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember where we fit. The heavens are telling the glory of God, something outside of us and beyond us, and it's copious revelation. It's marked by unrestrained abundance. It's pouring forth speech, and it's happening all over the world. There is no corner of the world where the heavens are not carrying out their ministry. Spurgeon says the sun, moon, and stars are God's traveling preachers, and that's exactly what they are. The heavens are thundering in their vast silence the glorious wisdom and skill and power and goodness of their creator. And so David here speaks of the message. The message is being communicated. Of course, it was a common thing in those days for, uh, for people to look at the stars and look for signs. Um, the astrologers said that the, sign, the, the stars held secrets. And that if you were able to discern their movements and their positioning in relation to each other, you could unravel some of the mysteries of the world. You know, uh, the meaning of history and where things are going, you could foretell the future. But that, David, of course, lived in that world. He knew all about that stuff. But, but he knew that's not what the heavens were talking about. They were talking about the glory of God. That was the message. They're proclaiming the kabod, the weight, the weightiness of God. The, the, the idea of glory is meant to convey significance, value, worth, magnificence. That's what the, the heavens are talking about. They, they proclaim his handiwork. Art Prize, I think, is just kicking off. And uh, if you go down and, and look at Art Prize, you'll see people's handiwork. And you can evaluate a person's uh, insight and skills as you look at their work well god has created a universe where you can examine the skills and the gifts and the abilities of god as you look at this vast vast universe and we of course can see so much more of it today than even david could see it's the product you see of his his infinite skill, his unfathomable power. How do you create these incredible, this, this vast universe with galaxies and these exploding stars and black holes? It's just, it's like a sci-fi novel. It's, it's too good to be true in a sense, the things that take place in our universe. 
And all of it, you see, manifesting the weight of God, his unparalleled wisdom, his, his exquisite care, his, his delight in beauty. Do you see the pictures coming back from Hubble? How, how just breathtakingly beautiful they are? I was um, flying out of Grand Rapids Tuesday morning early, and, and um, we were on our way, and, and the sun was just coming up. So I was flying, and, and there was a kind of a, uh, just hazy clouds. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I can't even really describe it to you. But, but the clouds were on fire. And we were just enveloped by a purple haze and fiery salmon mist saturated with morning light. It was just, it was, it was like swimming in, in glory. I don't know how else to say it. It was beautiful. Wish you could have been there. It was beautiful. And I was, you know, I, I was working on Psalm 19 and, and the heavens are telling the glory of God. You see, that so often we, we, we consider beauty something to be consumed, something that you look at. Maybe you take a picture, and then you're done with that. Now you're ready for the next whatever beautiful thing there is to see. It's, it's something that, you, that you're, you're simply looking for, a, an emotional response maybe that it inspires. But we're not, beauty is not there to be consumed. You see, beauty is talking to you. It's there to be heard. It's, it's saying something. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, the great quest of my life has been to find out where all the beauty comes from. But you see, beauty is there to be heard. It's not there to be worshipped either. Other people worship beauty. It's, it, that, that's to abuse it. It's talking to us about the nature of God, and we need to hear it. Jonathan Edwards was a, um, all of his life, delighted in just observing nature with these kinds of eyes. He was, when he was a, in his teens, he uh, wrote an essay about spiders. Uh, he seemed to be particularly infatuated with spiders, maybe not unusual for a young boy. And he specifically liked what he called flying spiders that he saw in the woods, uh, these, these spiders that were able to sort of float on the breeze by, by releasing and then, and, and then taking in again silk that was lighter than the air. And, and so he sees these spiders sort of floating along and he writes about it and, and, and says it, it, was, it seemed clear to him that they had their own kind of pleasure in it. There was sort of spider happiness taking place. And, and then Edwards drives a lesson from that. This is what he says. We hence see the exuberant goodness of the creator. That's a great line. The exuberant goodness of the Creator, who hath not only provided for all the necessities, but also for the pleasures and recreations of all sorts of creatures, even the insects and those that are most detestable. Baby skunks have a blast. <clears throat> Do you ever wonder why is joy woven through? creation. David even talks about it here in the psalm, that the, the sun runs its course with joy. Why do dolphins frolic? It's not necessary, and yet they are having the time of their life, if you've ever just watched dolphins. Just think about that. Why, why is that the case? Why is the world the way it is? Why is it shot through with joy and pleasure? Why should light have such amazing colors? 
Why should music have such incredible power? Why should a really good wine make your tongue dance and a great steak almost buckle your knees? Why? Doesn't have to be that way. Why is it that when you really touch beauty, when you come up against it and you taste glory and you smell sheer goodness, why is it that you, you feel like you want to cry? And I, I think it's because you're touching something real. You're, bump, you're bumping up against the weight of the magnificence and goodness of God. It's not just stuff to be consumed. It's, it's talking to you. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Earth, she writes this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. And she says the rest sit around pick blackberries. We're just consuming. But the people who see worship and take off their shoes. So the question is, the heavens are talking to you. When's the last time you just, you just worshiped? Why don't we? Well, for lots of reasons, primarily because of sin. You see, we, sin makes us blind. The God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers, and men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And even un professing believers and true believers even so often miss the message because we're not paying attention. Our mind is off somewhere else. We're, we're not picking up the signals, you see. We can't read the signs. We're, we, we're, we're not able to connect the dots. And that's the beauty of special revelations because special revelation talks to us and, and reminds us of the truth of who God is and who we are and what the world is about. The, the special revelation gives us a Psalm 19 so that we can accurately read general revelation. And so David moves then into special revelation, and we'll move along. The law of the Lord, he talks about the Torah of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, it's the same love language. It's the same delight, the ecstasy, the joy. Oh, how I love thy law. The law not just being ten commandments, but the Torah, the, the written revelation, the divinely inspired word of God, the record of his acts, his promises, his, his saving grace, his covenant character. His commands and precepts for his people. And notice how David has moved from speaking about the glory of God to, the, to speaking of the Lord, the law of the Lord, which is the name for the covenant God of Israel. You see, David is, is, wants everyone to know the God of Israel is not some tribal deity. He's not uh, the Israelites' uh, own um, self-made creation like the gods of all the other nations. The God of Israel is, the, the, the Lord of Israel is the God who made heaven and earth, which renders every other God a fantasy. That's what he's saying. One writer says, the identity of the lawgiver of Israel with the creator of the universe was a fundamental principle of the religion of the Old Testament. All other gods are the 
creations of men. Dick Lucas said this. He says, if you turn the gods of this world upside down, you will see made in China written on the bottom. They're all self-made. It might say made in USA too. Every other god that, that people worship is self-made. Just a god made by men. And so you see, David is delighting in God's written revelation because it reveals the Lord, the true living God of heaven and earth. And, and again, we could take these verses and we could go point by point and we could, we could um, create and craft a wonderful theology of Scripture from these verses. And, and that's been done, and I recommend you, you look at that. But... I don't want to do that tonight because I think we could, we could draft a, 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 a nice theology of Scripture and miss the central point, which I think David is, is he's just begging those who hear this, this song and who sing this song to treasure this word, to treasure what we have in, in the word of God. The language is, is the language of a lover. In, in 10, verse 10, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. C.S. Lewis has a great discussion of this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. And he says, what does it mean to treasure the law of God so that you find it sweeter than honey from the honeycomb? Better than much fine gold. He says, I can understand that people would respect the law of God, the word of God. I can see how they could admire it for its moral uh, teaching. I can see how you would appreciate it as having benefit. But David is, he's ravished by it. He loves it. He treasures it. This is the language, C.S. Lewis says, of a man ravished by moral beauty. Well, what is it about the word that David finds so appealing? And C.S. Lewis suggests that it is simply the concept that in the word we have truth. Truth. You see, if you look at these verses, every phrase that David uses reflects in some sense the, the truth of it. The law is perfect. The testimonies are sure. The precepts are right. The commands are pure. The fear is clean. The rules are true. You see, we live in a world that's been affected by the lie, the great liar, the devil himself. And so there are lies and half-truths and spun-truths all around us. And here we have not just, we don't have propaganda in the word of God. We don't have religious sentiment in the Word of God. We don't just have moral instruction or teaching in the Word of God. What we have here is reality that accords with the very reality of God himself. That is the beauty of the doctrine of inspiration, divine inspiration. This doesn't come to us in, then in that sense marred by human blindness, human misunderstanding. We believe that the word of God is the very word of God, that it is, it's true as nothing else in the world is true. Reality that accords with the reality of God himself. I was reading a, a testimony, Dale Beckering sent it to me, written by Samantha Blythe. 
Uh, it's on Christianity Today. It's a fascinating read. I would highly recommend it to you. She was a uh, pagan, and um, she writes about how she came to faith. Let me just uh, read just a little bit of her testimony. She says, the main reason I'm a Calvinist today is because I know I would never, ever have chosen Christ and definitely did not think I needed a personal Savior. I was a blasphemer who truly hated Jesus Christ in his real person. She was Jewish. Although, I, she says, um, I was totally ignorant about the Christian faith, but was still very, un, but was still very comfortable pointing out all that was wrong with it. And then one day, uh, a Christian, newly converted Christian friend, she makes a point to say, I, I say newly converted because I never, ever, ever would have made friends with a Christian. But I had a friend who became a Christian, so she had to deal with it. Well, she ends up down the road in a, a campground uh, in, somewhere in Texas, and it's the middle of the night, and she's got nothing to read. Somehow there's a Bible there. So she says the, the, the real weirdness, however, came one night in that campground when I was awake in the tent while everyone else was sleeping with no book but the Bible to read, I'm not even sure why we had this Bible. But since I'm one of those people who always needs to be reading something, I found myself reading Matthew by the light of a propane lantern while my family slept on the blow-up mattress. As I read, I had this awful, sinking feeling that I was confronting truth. And I did not like it. I don't think I understood most of what I was reading, least of all the idea of sin and sacrifice, but I knew that I was facing something that I had wrongly mocked and denied all my life, and my mouth was finally silenced. I am sure many people appreciated the peace and quiet. Is that good? And she was mortified. She's Jewish. She says, I, I was mortified because I knew I would have to eat my words and tell my Jewish family that I was now one of them. She says, I'm not kidding. That's almost like telling your family that you're one of the pod people in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> it's just too weird. One of them? A Christian? Yeah, why? Because she came across the Gospel of Matthew. And it was true. It was just true. If you read the story of Kristen Powers, Kirsten Powers, it's exactly her testimony. She was in a Bible study, and all of a sudden it just hit her. This is truth. It's truth. So C.S. Lewis says the psalmist's delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness, a place to stand. Do you see why, why David says, Lord, my rock? May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock. There's a place to stand. Truth. And that truth has power. It revives the soul. It is the only thing in the entire world, friends, that can accomplish that. The Word of God is the only thing. That's why Don McCrory is doing a Bible study in his home. That's why we open Scripture Sunday after Sunday. It's why we do men's and women's Bible studies. The Word of God has a unique, unparalleled power. It revives dead souls. That awesome? If you're a Christian, it's because this Word did that work in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the mighty weapon of God to accomplish his saving purposes. And it makes wise the simple. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's uniquely fitted and designed for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's what it's for. That's what it does. 
And it gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. It removes the, 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 the fog of our thinking. It, it, it breaks away the cobwebs of the lies of our culture. It helps us to see who we really are. What is really true? Have you ever just felt in this whole, um, the, all the discussions taking place, I don't care, pick your topic today, in our culture, that it, it just gets confusing. What, what, at the end of the day, is true? Let's, let's go to the Word of God. We have truth. Gives light to the eyes. No spin, no opinions. Truth as it accords with the reality of God. And that's why David says it's so precious. More to be desired than gold. And one of the benefits of the word is that it warns us. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there's great reward. This word will warn you, you see. They'll say you weren't made for whatever you're throwing your life away to pursue. You weren't made for sex. You weren't made for money. You weren't made for reputation. You weren't made for comfort. You weren't made for entertainment. You're made for the glory of God. And you have a soul that is going to live forever and ever with your body either in the, in the presence of God or in the eternity of hell. And that, that means that your life and your days now have an unbelievable significance and value. And what are you doing with them? By them your servant is warned. Do not be conformed by this world. Do not be deceived. Drunkards and, and liars and and cheats and stealers and adulterous, sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And put away all anger, rage, and malice because of these the wrath of God is coming. Those are warnings. Meant to be heard, meant to be received. The Bible will never allow us to use the promises of God to negate the warnings of God. There's great reward in that in heeding the warning and paying attention to it. As God shows you the truth of your sin, the magnitude of your guilt, the depth of your depravity, the damage that you cause to others, the culpability that you have before a living God, and the fact that one day you will stand before him face to face. And that's why, you see, David says what he says next, Lord, who can discern his hairs? It seems like a strange segue. How does he get into talking about in his hidden faults and presumptuous sins? The way he, get, he gets there is because he senses he's in the presence of God. And, and, and in the presence of God, when you stand in front of glory, when, you, when you're in the presence of beauty and holiness and righteousness and splendor of God, you, you feel exposed. You can't help it. You feel the weight of his holiness and justice and truth, his, his power. And you know that you're not what you're supposed to be. David experiences that, that truth. And that he's, he's prone to presumptuous sins. You know what a presumptuous sin is? It's to say you believe in God and then to live your life as though he didn't exist. It's to, it's to act as though God is not holy. That he really doesn't, isn't that worried about your particular besetting sin. And so you're going to give yourself a pass. You're not going to really take the seriousness of what the Word says and, and, and the, the moral reality of God in all of His burning, consuming righteousness. That isn't going to be really that important to you. And so you'll sin presumptuously. You'll sin as a person who says you, you know the truth and you've heard the truth and you even believe the truth, but you don't live like it. And friends, we've all committed, we're all guilty of it. 
And that's where I love how David ends it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David, David needs a redeemer. That's how he ends. My redeemer, the God who heals, the God who forgives. So, so when he thinks of God, God is a truth on which to stand and a savior on which to fall. And that's the beauty of the word of God. It shows us that Savior. His name is Jesus Christ who came so that our presumptuous sins could be forgiven and, and our hearts could be turned back to God, the one who made us, and we could live for the glory of God. And we could join creation in telling the glory of God. And we could, we could find our lives being molded by this word so that we more and more experience this power. So let me wrap up. This is a psalm of a man who senses the reality of God all around him. It's in the sky as it, as it is thundering its message. It's in the word as it speaks to him. God is there. God is present. And friend, I just want to ask you, do you have any sense of that truth? Do you understand that God is talking to you? Do you is, is, are, you, are you conscious of that? Are you awake to that? That God is speaking to you every day. It is fall. You're going to see glory, unbelievable glory, as the trees turn their colors in the misty mornings and the beautiful sunrises and sunsets. You're going to see glory all around you. Don't just consume it. Listen to it. God's talking to you. Are you willing to trust the God who faithfully moves the seasons along? Are you able to delight in the God who, is able, who delights in so much beauty, so much color, the God who created all this? Are you willing are you willing to trust him as, as he leads you along in your life? Are you willing to worship him as he deserves? You see, revelation carries responsibility. It always does. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that people have they've, they've, they've had all the revelation of creation talking to them about the reality of God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but he says they're without excuse. Friend, you just need to know you can't live in God's world. You can't be the recipients of God's revelation in his creation and here tonight in his word and then just walk away as though it doesn't have to impact you. It impacts you, whether to life or to death, and it does the same to me. God is speaking, and that revelation carries responsibility. And so let me just ask you again tonight, where are you with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you... Have you confessed your sin? Have you turned to him? Are you dealing with God? Are you, are you facing the truth the way that Samantha Blythe faced the truth of the word and the truth of revelation and creation? And if you are, then join with God's people in worship. And let's let the reality of God rest heavy upon us. Let's let the glory of God settle down upon us so that his holiness, his beauty, his goodness, his faithfulness really becomes a molding imprint upon our life and that we're finding our lives being changed by the reality of God. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you that you speak. I thank you, O oh God, that you don't give up on us. We confess so often we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye. We're too busy, Lord, worrying and being anxious and being angry and being self-reliant, self-willed. And so we don't even hear. But Father, I thank you that it gives you good pleasure to speak again.
as you have tonight, as you do every day and every night in the things that you've made. Father, we just pray that the reality of God would settle upon us. The awesome weight of God would mold us. And that his, his truth would transform us. His love would constrain us to die to ourselves and to bless other people, to speak the word of this glorious gospel message to those who need to hear. Father, please do not leave us as those who it could be said that God rests lightly upon them. May we be a church that is face-to-face through your revelation with you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.